Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Five minutes past when we normally start, so we'll start. Um, a couple of things before I get into the message. Uh, originally, I had planned that we would do the kind of group discussion first, but basically our one little small group, uh, I think we'll call an audible and do the study and uh, take it from there. Um, but a couple of things that I wanted uh, to give your attention to. Um, the first one is, is there's going to be an opportunity to go to Israel coming up this summer in July, uh, from July 18th through 26th. Uh, we'll be going. Um, I'm going to be taking a group out there. And it's a, uh, a, a nice tour. You know, we're going to have real nice accommodations. Ladies, air-conditioned buses that are real nice and everything. Uh, but it's a little bit discounted from what the church normally does. My heart for doing this is I love Israel. I've lived in Israel. I've toured Israel many times. I've been a part of many people coming there and seeing the way that it impacts their life, visiting there. And it has impacted my life in a great way. And I want every Christian to be able to experience that. I want every Christian to be able to see the Holy Land and walk where Jesus walked and have that experience. But I realize the trips that our church does, which are great, I highly recommend them, are out of reach for a lot of people. It ends up being either too expensive or the timing of it just doesn't work. So some people from here asked me to do a trip that would work for them, and that's kind of what this is. So the dates are July 18th through 26th. And uh, if you want some more information about that, you could ask me and I'll be happy to tell you all about it. The second thing is, is as I'm sure all of you guys know, Andrew is going to be leaving us. Um, he's got an amazing opportunity up north and he's only going to be here with us a uh, few more weeks. Um, but we're planning a uh, kind of a going away celebration. It'll be on Saturday, May 13th. We'll meet up at the park, probably Yorba Linda Park. Uh, I haven't studied uh, that for sure yet. And we'll just spend some time together. We'll have some great food. We'll play some games and things like that. So put May 13th on your calendar. Um, yeah, I believe that is it for the announcements. The, you know, uh, today I was trying to finish preparing uh, to do ex or Ephesians chapter two. And I just had a, a ton of distractions and I just, I really felt like God was pressing me to do something different. So I've been working on this uh, study in Exodus 17 and so that is where we're going to be tonight. So if you could open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Uh, tonight we're going to look at verses 8 through the end of the chapter, 8 through 16. So we're going to look at the second half of Exodus 17. Does anybody know what the word Exodus means? Huh? Yes. It's actually, uh, ek is the the Greek preposition, or out, or away from. And the other word is haras. It's the one, it's the word that Jesus uses when he says, I am the way, or I am the haras, the amen, and the life. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is literally the, the way out or, or the road out. And that's what we're seeing here is the road, God delivering his people, giving them a road out of bondage, a road out of Egypt. But let me pray for us and we'll get into our study. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you that we get to be here. I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the privilege of being able to exposit it, Lord. And I pray tonight that you would speak. Uh, I need you to speak if anything is going to happen. What I have to say isn't enough to change anybody's soul, to change their heart, to renew their mind. But your word can do all of these things, Lord. And so we ask you to do that. We ask the move of your Holy Spirit uh, to be upon us tonight, Lord. I thank you that your greatest miracles, the greatest works that we see you do in the Bible have the, the fewest amount of people around. And we trust that you're going to do mighty things tonight uh, with these faithful brothers and sisters that are here. I thank you for each one of them. I pray for all those that aren't here. We have people that are sick. I've heard a number of people are sick and people are out of town. I pray that you be with them, that you touch them, that you bless them, and that you bring them back to us the next week. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this late historian, uh, actually there was two of them, Will and Ariel Durant, they declared or, or studied the, all of written history throughout the world, and they discovered that there's 3,400 years, a little bit more than 3,400 years of written history in the world, and out of those 3,400 plus years, there's only been 168 years where men haven't been at war with men. In other words, there's been pretty much a perpetual war, a perpetual battle going on amongst mankind. Uh, this tells us that this battle, this conflict that we're going to have with each other is kind of inevitable until Jesus returns. And not only is this true in the physical sense, not only is there pretty much guaranteed that there's going to be animosity between people groups and fighting going on in the physical realm, but it's definitely true in the spiritual realm as well. There's this constant battle going on of forces, of angels and demons and, uh, you know, fighting each other. You could read the book of Daniel and get a great picture of this, where Daniel is praying and God sends an angel and it takes some weeks to get there because this angel is caught up fighting other angels on the way to get to Daniel with the message from God. All around us, there's this spiritual battle going on. There's forces fighting. And, and these are real angelic beings, real spiritual forces that are at war battling each other. And they have great implications on what's happening here around us. The fact that we're oblivious to it, or we go about our day so often not recognizing that these battles are happening, doesn't negate the fact that they have a huge impact on the affairs of our life and what's going on. I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever been in a fight? Like, have you ever gotten in a fist fight with someone? I know most ladies probably haven't, but you maybe have gotten in a, a screaming match, you know, pulling some hair and whatnot, right? Uh, but it, it, if you're a Christian, I want to say that, that you're in a fight right now. And it's actually, I, I will argue, that our engagement in this fight is actually proof that we're a Christian. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8 
in verses 13 and 14. He says, for if you're living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the way that we know that we're a true Christian is that we're being led by the Spirit of God. And in the context of this passage, the Spirit of God is leading us to make war with our flesh, to mutilate the deeds of the flesh. So not only is there wars going on in the world, there's wars going on in the cosmic realm, and there's a war going on inside of us. Our, Our carnal nature versus our spiritual nature. In today's passage, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16, we're going to see the children of Israel's first fight as a nation. They've just gotten saved out of Egypt. They've only been a country for a few days. They don't have an army. (laughs) And they're going to get in a fight. And I believe that this battle that Israel has with the Amalekites here in Exodus 17 is going to teach us a whole lot of principles on how to be effective in this spiritual battle that I'm talking about. How are we going to engage our flesh and be able to have victory over it and grow in sanctification? How are we going to be able to make a difference in the world through battling the spiritual realm and through prayer and things like that? In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Right? Satan has a kind of a method of operation, ways that He attacks uh, methods he uses to get us to succumb to temptation, methods he uses to keep us on the sideline and not participating in the battle that God wants us to be in. And tonight we're going to see some of these methods and some of the ways that we could have victory over them. So let's look at the text, starting in verse 8. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him. And he fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held his hands up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. For Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So I've entitled this Holy War. This is a, a, a war that God wants us all to be involved in. In the Old Testament, the Holy Wars were... God commanding the children of Israel to go and drive out the Canaanites, to get rid of the Canaanites and to possess the Holy Land, to possess the, uh, the, their inheritance, the land of promise. Right? And now, that was a type of the Holy War that God wants us to have. 
you see that the promised land was really a type of, of us. And, and God now has a war going on inside of each one of us, as I mentioned earlier. And we are to drive out uh, the, the flesh. We're to drive out our sinful nature and let God possess more and more of us. We're to grow in sanctification, so to speak. But some background for this, I think, will help us to understand this passage a little bit better. The Amalekites, who are they? The Amalekites are the descendants of Amalek. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Now, the Bible describes Esau as a profane, a, a godless person, right? He, he sold his birthright to his brother for a mere bowl of soup. He was more interested in satisfying his belly than he was in spiritual things, right? He was all about his flesh. And so his descendants, the Amalekites, throughout the Bible become a type, a picture of the flesh. Now, the Amalekites were an interesting group. They were this Bedouin group, a bunch of gypsies, and they made their living by going and ransacking and pillaging smaller groups or disadvantaged groups. They were skilled fighters. They would ride on camels, which you know gave them an advantage attacking other people that weren't riding on camels. And they would come and they would slaughter people and they would basically take the, the spoil of the war and live off of that. Now, remember the children of Israel, right? They had just come out of Egypt. And what did God tell the children of Israel uh, to ask their neighbors for before they left? But hey, ask them for their stuff, right? For their gold, their jewels, you know, all their valuable things. And they were obedient. They went and asked their neighbors, say, hey, give me your gold. Give me your, your earrings, you know, give me your, your family heirlooms. And, and they did. <laughs> and so the, the children of Israel... And, and, and God had a plan for that stuff, right? He was, that, that was all going to be the stuff that was going to be used to make the tabernacle and the articles of worship and things like that. Um, but the children of Israel, are about uh, uh, over a million people, are traveling through the desert, leaving it, Egypt, and they've got all these riches on them. and got all this spoil that they've taken from the Egyptians. They, they don't have an army. They've never been in a fight. And... No doubt the Amalekites see that, and their eyes are as big as a kid on Christmas morning. They're like, hey, this is the ultimate, this is the ultimate spoil. Let's go take it. And so they're gonna come and they're gonna try to fight Israel. And they're gonna this battle's gonna happen literally on the second day of the existence of Israel's military. It's like Moses says, Hey, the Amalekites are coming. Hey, Joshua, form a military. Tomorrow you're fighting them. So we have this group of skilled fighters fighting against this group who has never been in a fight before, has never practiced, had never been to boot camp, has never done anything militarily before. Now there's three things I think that this passage uh, is going to, that we should look at that's going to show us how to have victory against our flesh because we like Israel, if we're left to our own, we are extremely outmatched against our flesh, the world, and the devil. Right? The enemy is, is much stronger than we are without our spiritual resources. So we're going to look at the timing of the attack. We're going to look at the methods of the victory. And we're going to look at the response to the victory. But for number one, fill in, there's a fight coming your way and the enemy is timely. So fill in the words fight and timely. Now remember when Jesus was being tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights? 
and the enemy would attack him, the devil would attack him, and every time Jesus responded, it is written, it is written, it is written, and quoted scripture back to the devil. And after the 40 days and 40 nights, remember, the, it says this, it says in Luke 4.13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. You see, the enemy's always looking for the opportune time to attack you. He's looking for the time that you've got your guard down, the time that you're not ready. The time that's going to be the most effective is precisely when he's going to strike. I was watching this video the other day of this guy. He owns this reptile store down in Huntington Beach, prehistoric pets. Have you heard of that? Like this museum. He's got all kinds of crazy animals there, king cobras and alligators and just nut stuff. But anyway, he's got this snake, his 20-foot Burmese python or some kind of crazy snake. And there's something wrong with her eggs. So he's going to take this snake out, and he's going to try to take the eggs from this mother snake because he has to remove these bad eggs from the other eggs. Otherwise, they're going to get rotten and destroy the good eggs. And this snake isn't having a good time. It's, it's really upset that it's being messed with. And it's got its eyes just fixed on this guy who's trying to get his eggs. And the very second he takes his attention off the snake, that snake just pounces out. And it's got a reach from like here to Andrew. You know? So it's like, the guy, it's really coming after him. And all it took was just one second to take his eyes off of that snake, to put his guard down, and it was pouncing at him. And that's a good picture of what the serpent, the enemy does for us. The second we get our attention off of him, we lose our focus, that is precisely when he is going to attack us. So now I want us to look at some of the times that the enemy attacks. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Right? So when is the enemy going to attack? The first time, our first fill-in is the enemy's attacks start after we become Christians. After we become Christians. Uh, in this text, they had been saved out of Egypt, right? Through the plagues, through the parting of the sea. They had gone through the desert. They're saved people. God has given them manna from heaven. They've split the rock and the water came out to feed them. They're experiencing the blessings of God. And that is precisely when the attacks come. You see, God, the enemy doesn't really care to attack us or really care much about us while we're his. It's when we become gods that we have a target on us. It's almost like this. Uh, imagine if you've got this rat kind of just staying on your shoulder. It's just chilling there. It's good. And all of a sudden, you try to knock it off. But what's that rat going to do? It's going down. It's going to start clawing, scratching, and doing everything it can to stay and get back up to that shoulder, to claw its way back up onto your shoulder. And that is what Satan does. You see, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 2 that we are all under the prince of the power of the air. We're all under the sway of the enemy. But when we become Christ, we get shifted from that sphere into the sphere of Christ. Now, all of a sudden, the enemy is going to try to attack us. He's going to try to regain that territory that he has lost. Uh, whenever God brings us into a new territory, a new sphere of instant influence, a new ministry, we can expect that Satan's going to start attacking. He doesn't want to give up any ground. 
He doesn't want to see us expand to become more effective. So the enemy attacks begin after we become Christians. Number two, the enemy attacks after our mountaintop experiences. They had some quite some mountaintop experiences, right? The ten plagues, the parting of the sea, the drowning of the Egyptians, getting the manna from heaven, getting the water from the rock, right? They they, they have the all the quail. They are really experiencing the the blessings from God. And this is when the enemy comes and attacks them. And we see this played out over and over throughout Scripture, the same thing. Remember Joshua? He takes the children of Israel into the Promised Land. And God gives them this miraculous victory at Jericho. They march around the city 13 times. They blow the shofars and the walls fall. And God just gives them Jericho, a great mountaintop experience. But what comes right after Jericho? AI. Right? They experience this Defeat because there's sin in the camp, because someone had fallen to temptation. Or how about Elijah? Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? He, uh, he challenges the prophets of Baal. He says, hey, let's put God to the test. You say that Baal's God, and I say that Yahweh's God. Let's build an altar and see which one responds. And God pours down fire and, and ignites the altar of, of Elijah's, and he slews, slays the Prophets of Baal, a great mountaintop experience for him and the nation of Israel. But right after that, there's an attack. Jezebel says, you're dead. What you did to my prophets is going to happen to you by this time tomorrow. And Elijah flees. He takes off. He's afraid of the enemy. Or how about Jesus? He gets baptized. God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. That's a pretty good day. People hear God speaking from heaven. Immediately, though, he's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. You see, whenever we have a mountaintop experience, we can expect an attack of the enemy. Right there, They go up on the mountain of transfiguration, and they come down and they're awaiting a demoniac. See, 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. As soon as we think that we're doing good, as soon as we think we've got this down, or, hey man, things are, are smooth sailing, that is exactly when we are going to be attacked. Number three, the enemy attacks when we're tired and weak. Feeling tired and weak. That's exactly what happens here. And Deuteronomy, uh, the, the second giving of the law, Moses is uh, giving his sermon before he dies and the children of Israel entered the promised land. So these are his last words to the children of Israel. He says this in chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. He says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. He did not fear God. But he didn't go to the, the strong guys in the front. No, he came to the back and attacked the weak, the tired, the weary. Right? So we need to make sure that we're rested. We need to make sure that we're strong, that we're prepared. Because the time that we are weak, the time that we're weary, is exactly when the enemy is going to come 
and attack us. Remember when Jesus and his disciples uh, were there in Gethsemane? And Jesus told them, hey, watch him pray lest you enter temptation. And then he goes off and, and he starts praying, right? Ask the Father, hey, Father, if it be your will, take this, let this cup pass from me, right? He prays that three times, and then he comes back. And what are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. He wakes them up, does the same thing, comes back. They're sleeping. Wakes them up, goes, does the same thing, comes back. They're sleeping. Well, right then, they come to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? He responds in the wrong way. He pulls out his sword and he starts trying to fight the people coming to arrest Jesus. He's fighting against the will of God. He's hacking people up. He's making Jesus, you know, heal Malchus's ear. You see, he entered that temptation. He got in the wrong battle using the wrong weapon and, you know, caused this mess because he wasn't prepared, because he hadn't been praying. He, he was weak. He had been sleeping instead of praying. See, the devil is always looking for opportune times to attack us. Next, he often comes while we're at rest or while we're resting. This word Rephidim, it says, uh, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Rephidim means rest in Hebrew. The, the place where they were is rest. Now, rest is a, a good thing. We're commanded to rest. The children of Israel were commanded to take a Sabbath Every six days they were to work, and then they were to have a day of rest. There was a time where Jesus, uh, after John the Baptist was beheaded, and they got the news, and the his disciples had just came back from their kind of internship, you know, sending out, that Jesus says this. He says, uh, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Rest is a good thing. It's an important thing. But we need to realize that when we're not resting at the right time, or if we're not prepared and alert while we're resting, that we could be an opportune attack for the enemy. God often meets us while we're resting. In the Abrahamic covenant, remember God is, uh, tells Abraham, hey, I want you to take some animals. I want you to cut them in half, spread them apart. And I'm going to pass through there with you. He's making a covenant with them where he's going to promise them descendants. Well, he makes Abraham fall asleep and rest. And when Abraham's resting, that's when God comes and makes the covenant. It was a unilateral covenant. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are resting. They're sleeping when God appears. And, and, and they wake up and God is, is there and ministers to them. You see, resting is a very good thing, but if we're not alert, it's going to turn into an opportune time for the enemy. You know, what's that saying? That idle hands are the devil's playground? Right? We need to be, make sure that we're not resting when we're supposed to be working. We're not resting when we're supposed to be ministering. We're not resting when we're supposed to be in fellowship with God through the word and prayer. This guy, Bobby Leach, he's an Englishman. He startled the world some years ago by his daring feat of going over Niagara Falls in a barrel. He came through the experience miraculously unscathed. Some small, sometime later, uh, Leach was walking down the street. And he slipped on a small orange peel. He was rushed to the hospital with a badly fractured leg. 
But this is crazy. I mean, this guy literally jumps off Niagara Falls in barrels, and he's fine. But just walking down the street, he slips on an orange peel. See, believers are more frequently brought down by minor skirmishes than they are by a major battle. Right? It's when we think, oh, this isn't important. This is some easy thing. Or I got this. You know, it's time to just relax and rest. That's when we're more likely to get hurt. That's when we're more likely to fall to the temptations of the enemy. But we need to make sure we're not resting while we're supposed to be working. The Ten Commandments, right? There's only one imperative in all of the Ten Commandments. It's six days thou shalt work. All the other ones are in the indicative, right? They're, they're just statements. The one command is that six days thou shalt work. It was King David, right? It was when the time when the kings would go out to battle, right? That he stays home and he's like, yeah, you know what? I've got an army. I've got generals. I've got this taken care of. Well, it was exactly then when he was tempted by Bathsheba, commits adultery. She gets pregnant, has her husband killed to cover it up, and suffers for a year before Nathan comes and confronts him. And then ends up losing his son, having family problems, has it recorded in Scripture for everybody to read throughout all of redemptive history because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He fell to the attack of the enemy. Right? So we need to make sure that we're not resting or that when we're supposed to be working. Lastly, we need to see that this battle is ongoing. Fill in the word ongoing. We see in this text that the battle lasted all day. In verse 12, it says, uh, thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Right? There's this battle. It's going to be ongoing. It's all day. We need to be engaged all day. And not only that, we read in the last verse that this is, this is going to be an ongoing battle from generation to generation that the Lord will have war against Amalek. Right? We need to realize that this battle isn't going anywhere. We need to be engaged and we need to be ready. For number two, we're going to see that we could learn from their method of victory. So fill in the word method. Look at verses 9 through 13. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us. Go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. When he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him. He sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, on the one, side, one on the one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Uh, your first fill-in is prayer is a mighty weapon. Uh, throughout the Bible, this lifting up of hands has been a symbol of prayer. Psalm 134, verse 2, it says, Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple that he has built. And three times in this prayer that he gives as he dedicates the temple, it says, 
that uh, hands are lifted. For instance, in chapter 8, verse 54 of 1 Kings, it says, when Solomon had finished paying, or, or praying his entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees, and his hands were spread towards heaven. 1 Timothy 2.8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So again, this lifting up of hands is always a symbol of prayer in the Bible. See, the battle was fought in the valley, but it was one on the mountaintop. It was one where the prayer was happening. The same thing was true of... Uh, of uh, The revivalist, he would say that, you know, before he would preach, he would have so much power because down in the boiler room, there was so many men praying. Jonathan Edwards, before the Great Awakening happened, there was hundreds of people praying that God would visit the East Coast. So the, the real battle was being fought through prayer. We see the same thing in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. They come and they're going to take him and, and try to make him king. So he sends the boys out on the lake there in Galilee to protect them. And all night they're battling a storm. They're not going anywhere. They're stuck in the middle of the sea. They're freaked out. But they're going to make it because Jesus is up on the hillside. He's on the mountain praying for them. He's praying while they are in the storm. That is where the battle is going to be won. I like what Watchman Nee says about prayer. He says, our prayers lay the track down upon which God's power can come. Like a light, mighty locomotive, his power is irresistible, but it cannot reach us without rails. God has tremendous power that he wants to unleash in your life. But the method that he's going to bring that about is through prayer. And if we're not praying, we're cutting off access to that power that he wants to dispense in us and through us. We need to pray to access God's power. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world, one guy said. Another said, prayer is the only omnipotence that God grants to us. The only way we have access to God's omnipotent power is through prayer. Are you struggling in an area? Well, pray for that area. But we need to pray before that temptation comes. So often I talk to men especially who are struggling with things like pornography and they tell me as soon as they start feeling tempted to watch porn or to smoke pot or to drink alcohol or, or whatever it is, that they, that they start feeling this temptation, they start praying, God help me. And then they end up giving in to the temptation and they feel all discouraged and they're telling me, oh, why didn't the prayer work and all of that. And I said, well, it's great that you're praying, but you need to start earlier. You see, when we would go in, when the military goes in to take territory, to storm beaches like we did on D-Day, we don't just open the boat and send a bunch of soldiers in. No, the first thing that we do is we fly and we just launch all kinds of bombs at the enemy. And we just bomb the crap out of them because that breaks up the enemy's strongholds. That breaks the enemy up enough so that when we send in the infantrymen, they stand a chance. They're able to have victory. And when we wake up and we start praying, hey God, help me. 
help me to fight the temptation over pornography today. I know I haven't faced it yet, but I know it's coming. Help me, God. Help me to not drink today, God. Help me. I know I'm going to be tempted later. Help me. And all day we're pleading with God. What we're really doing is launching bombs out ahead of us so that when we actually come to that battle, we have a chance. The strongholds have been broken. But if we wait till we're just in the thick of it, it's going to be too late. The enemy's going to be too strong for us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3-6, through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the disobedience of Christ, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. We need to be praying about the battles that are coming. But we also need to realize God's presence and power. And we see this in the rod of God. This rod, right? The hands being lifted up. Yeah, it's a symbol of prayer, but it means a whole lot more than prayer. You see, because it was really the lifting up of the rod. The rod was in their hands. And that's where the power was. This rod represents the presence and the power of God. And this same rod is called different things throughout the wilderness wanderings. It's called the rod of God. It's called the staff of Aaron. It's called the staff of Moses. This is the same rod that, remember when uh, they came and challenged Aaron and Moses' authority, Korah and his friends, they, they each put in a rod, and it was Aaron's rod that budded and grew. It's the same rod that did that. It's the same rod that turned the Nile into blood. It's the same rod that parted the Red Sea. It's the same rod that smote the rock and provided the water. But I want to say something. It wasn't the rod. It wasn't the staff that had any power. It was what it represented. It represented the presence and the power of God. And there's another thing that represents the presence and power of God. Another piece of tree, another piece of wood, and it's in the New Testament. It is none other than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. You see, we need to take the gospel and we need to apply it to the victories that we're facing or the battles that we're facing if we're going to have victory. It's ultimately through the gospel that we're going to have victory over the flesh, that we're going to have victory over the enemy. You see, the law, we could say, hey, God says, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. I shouldn't be lusting. I know it's wrong. But it has no power to actually help me to do it. All the law could do is show me, hey, I'm guilty. I keep lusting. Right? And Paul says that the law entices sin. It, it, it makes you want to sin by telling you you can't have something. But there's power in the gospel. You see, because now the motivation isn't fear. It's not, hey, I can't do this or I'm going to be judged. The motivation is love. You see, we, we come to, to Calvary, and, and it's completely different than Sinai. It's been said that the Bible is the story of two mountains. On one mountain in the Old Testament, Sinai. God reveals His glory. Another mountain in the New Testament, uh, Calvary Mountain, God reveals His glory uh, in, in tremendous ways. He reveals Himself. He, uh, he, he does tremendous things in both, but they're different. You see, in the law, the motive is fear. You've got to obey or else 
you're going to be judged. But in Calvary, the motive is love. It's saying, hey, look at what I did for you. Look at how much I love you. And now, hey, if God loves me that much, and I love Him, I could follow Him. And it's easy. I could choose not to do it. You see, the law tells you to run a five-minute mile. It breaks your legs and then it mocks you because you can't complete it. Where grace, the gospel, bids you to fly and gives you wings to allow you to soar above the heavens and the earth. The gospel is far superior to the law in any and every way. So our best defense isn't to try to fight it with legalism and the law and say, I can't do this or you shouldn't do that. No, it's to apply the gospel to it. It's to look at, no, Jesus loved me so much that he was willing, the sinless one was willing to go to the cross and to die for my sins. He paid for that sin. He bled for that sin. And he loves me enough that he died for me. And I love him. And so now it's, it's easy to follow him. My motivation is out of love. We need to remember that Jesus not only bought our forgiveness on the cross, but he also freed us from the power of the sin. Right? We're a new creation. We no longer have to sin. I tell this to my sister all the time. She says, I was born gay. So maybe you were. I don't know. But Jesus says, you need to be born again. <laughs> you need to become a new creation. See, the best defense is a good offense. It, it, it really is. When we play football, We'd every now and then encounter teams that were really good. They'd move the ball up and down the field really fast. They'd score a bunch of points. And our strategy against them was to stay on offense because when we're on offense, they don't have the ball. They can't score. And so we, we would you know, try to keep the ball as long as we can and, and be on offense to keep their offense off the field. And the same thing is true spiritually as well. We need to stay on offense. We need to stay gospel-minded. We need to be sharing the gospel. We need to be... You know, thinking on scripture. We need to be praying. We need to stay motivated because when we are, we're less likely to keep the, uh, to fall prey to the enemy. We also need to keep our minds on Christ. Colossians three says, "Set your mind on the things above." One way that helps me to do that is when I start facing temptation, when the enemy starts accusing me, when I start feeling anxious. I start going through the alphabet and starting thinking for things that represent Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the chief cornerstone. He's my daysman. He's the everlasting father. He's the finisher of my faith. He's the good shepherd. He's human. He's impeccable. He's Jesus. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the morning star. I think you guys get the picture. But we need to stay gospel-minded. Right? We need to remind ourselves of the presence and the power of God. Number three, we need to not be ashamed to ask for a spotter. Don't be ashamed to ask for a spotter. Fill in the word spotter. You know, uh, I, I like to go to the gym. I like to work out. And every now and then you get this guy, this ego lifter in there who's trying to lift too much weight. And he doesn't want to ask for help, you know, because he doesn't want anybody to see that he can't lift too much weight. And so he ends up trying to lift the weight and it falls on his chest and ends up making this loud banging noise and all this. And he gets hurt and everybody sees him <laughs> stupid anyways. Right? We don't want to be that person. Right? It's okay to ask for help. We need help. We can't win this battle 
alone. We need to remember that Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs for a reason, right? Because he even says it. God says it's not good for man to be alone. In Ecclesiastes, it says that two is always better than one. We need each other. And this is why we send, when we do evangelism, people out in pairs, right? One person could be praying for the other person. There's somebody there to spot that person if they get asked a question that they can't handle. There's somebody there to step in if things start getting out of control. There's somebody there to watch you to make sure that you're not making mistakes. But we need each other. Right? This passage that we all love about temptation in 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with, with temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Like we love that, right? There's going to be a way of escape. We're not going to be tempted beyond what we are able. Like, you know, God's going to get us out of it. But we forget that that is a plural you. It's written to a church. It's being read to a church. And he's saying, you as a body, God isn't going to tempt beyond what you are able. God's going to make an escape for you as a body, a corporate you. Yeah, on your own, he's going to give you way more than you can handle. But that's why you need your brothers and sisters to bear your burdens, to be praying for you, and to be walking through it with you, encouraging you, to be telling, quoting scripture to you. Then we have the help. We have the resources. The attacks of the enemy won't be greater than us if we're using all the resources that God has given us. When I played football, we'd have to lift weights. That was you know, one of the things that you had to do to be a good football player. And we were always trying to get stronger. And so they would kind of map out like, hey, you're going to lift 70% of your max for five reps. The next week, you're going to lift 75% of your max for five reps. The next week, you're going to lift 85% for three reps. And the idea was to kind of pyramid up where we're going above our max. And there's times that we're lifting more weight than we could ever lift it or we had ever lifted before. We're, we're reaching PRs. And it was important that we had someone there to spot us. You know, not just to, so that in case we messed up, but to help us get those last couple of reps so that we could grow and get stronger and conquer new territory. Well, that same thing is true in the spiritual realm as well. Whenever we're conquering new territories, whenever we're winning souls, whenever we're starting new ministries, whenever we're going into new territory to try to win souls for the gospel, whenever we're doing missions, we need people there spotting us. We need people there with us. Joshua needed help from Moses, and we need him too. When was the last time we asked someone to pray for us? It's amazing how I, I could feel that the second I'm struggling and I ask people to pray for me, it's like there's this, this grace imparted to me. Just today I was struggling to concentrate, to pay attention. And I sent out a text, hey, I'm struggling, pray for me. And it was like instantaneously, I felt better. God says he gives grace to the humble. Asking for prayer is one of the most humble things that you can do. You could ask people to hold you accountable. right? Say, hey, I'm struggling in this area. I need you to hold me accountable. Again, that's a humble thing to do. Or better yet, 
You could be like her. You could be like Aaron. Right? You could look for people to go encourage. You could go look for people saying, hey, I want to pray for you. How could I pray for you? How could I be there to be a spotter for you? You know, in the book of Ephesians, we'll get there in chapter 6, we're talked about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. And Paul goes through the articles of this armor. They all represent something from the Word of God or Christ. Uh, but he says, you know, put it on, right? Put on the, the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, shod your shoes with the uh, readiness to use the gospel of peace, put on your helmet of salvation with the sword of the Spirit, all, the, all of these things, right? Shield of faith, so that you could then go and pray for, for the ministers, pray for the other saints. That's how, that's how you get in that spiritual battle is through intercessory prayer. We need to pray for others more. This is hard for us because we come from such an individualistic society. There's two kind of cultures. There's individualistic cultures like America, like the West, and there's collectivistic cultures like the East. I'm sure, Kevin, you probably, your cultures are completely different than ours over here, right? A lot, yeah, they're honor and shame, right? The one person messes up, the whole, the whole group's shamed, right? It's a collectivistic way of thinking. Here, I could go do something stupid, and it's like, you're an idiot, but there's no shame to, to my family, right? But, but very much so, in the collectivistic culture, if one member suffers, the whole group suffers. If one member on, is honored, the whole group is honored. And I, and I think that causes us to struggle to pray for each other, to bear each other's burdens, to you know, weep with those who weep, to celebrate with those who celebrate. We need to remember that the Bible was written to a collectivistic culture, a collectivistic society, and we need to be more that way. You know, I was reading this book not that long ago by this guy, Tom Doyle, his book called Killing Christians. And I'm reading chapter after chapter of these horrible ways that the men and women of God are being killed and tortured to death for their faith. And then I come to one of the last pages, and he says, as a Christian, you are being persecuted. And I'm like, I'm being persecuted? Like, I haven't experienced anything like these people. And then he quotes the passage that says, hey, when one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Because the way that these people are being persecuted, I may not realize it because I only see things through my individualistic lens, but it really is affecting me. So when was the last time that we prayed for the Christians who are being persecuted, the Christians who are being martyred for their faith? When one body, when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. You know, Jesus says he's going to build his church, and he's going to, confident of that. But maybe our faithfulness and being as effective as God wants us to be in the Great Commission has to do with how the church down the street's doing. Or maybe when we hear about some church doing something crazy, or some church embracing the LGBTQ movement, or Black Lives Matter, or things like that, and we start making fun of them, we should be praying for them. 
Because in a very real sense, how they're doing affects the way that we're going to be able to complete our mission here as a church because we're all one body. We're the body of Christ. We need each other. Letter D, we need to get into the fight personally. Filling the word personally. It says, Joshua killed Amalek with the sword. Verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Right? It's one thing to ask people to pray for you. One thing to encourage people you know, to be like Aaron and her. But we also need to be like Joshua. We need to get down into the battle. We need to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God that God has given us. Jesus quoted Scripture three times and he was tempted of the devil. And each time he quoted the book of Deuteronomy. He found these obscure passages in the book of Deuteronomy that directly related to the circumstances that he was going through. So I ask us, do we know the Bible well enough that when we're facing temptations that we're able to see that they're temptations and we're able to know the Scripture to be able to remind ourselves of the truth so that we don't fall into that temptation? Are we in the Bible every day? I used to think the key to winning that battle that Jesus won in the desert was, in the wilderness, was knowing the book of Deuteronomy. All three times he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. And then I realized something, that all three passages he used are within a couple chapters of each other. And I was like, hey, maybe that was just where he was at in his quiet time that day. He was meditating on those chapters. And maybe it's not so much that you have to understand the entire Bible to be able to fight the attacks of the enemy, but that you just need to be in the Bible every day. And if we'll go to God in the morning and expect God to feed us with his word, what we need for the day, he will. And he'll give us sufficient scripture. He'll give us sufficient ammo for the day for what we're going to need to fight the temptations that we're going to face that day. See, the Holy Spirit ain't like that guy from Saving Private Ryan who was off trying to get the ammo and just left his buddies to get destroyed. No, he's going to come. He's going to feed us. He's going to give us what we need to be effective. He's going to give us the ammunition that we need to fight the enemy that day. I guarantee it. I'm 100% convinced of it. But we need to be in the Word. We need to be training with We need to be applying the Word. We need to be meditating on the Word. We need to be thinking on the Word. But we also need to be willing to deny ourselves. You see, Joshua lost here when he was trying to fight in his own strength. When he was in the flesh, trying to fight the flesh, they lost ground. But when they were in the Spirit, when the battle was the Lord's, when Moses' hand was lifted up, when the rod of God was lifting up, he prevailed. And I think Joshua was out there fighting, and, and he knew, hey, when Moses' hands were fight up, we're fighting in the power of God. When they went down, hey, I'm fighting in my own power. And there ain't no power in my power, at least not compared to the power of God. So we need to be willing to deny ourselves. This, uh, The Lord is our banner, Jehovah Nisi. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, what was a banner used? during this time. Well, the children of Israel, they would use banners uh, to tell the camp, hey, it's time to move. It's time to go to war. 
That's how banners were used in the ancient world. Right? They couldn't send out a text message or an email saying, hey, you know what, we're being attacked. You need to show up at camp. You need to be ready to go to battle at 8 o'clock. They couldn't do that. So they'd raise up a banner. They'd raise up a flag. And people would see it. And it's like, hey, it's time to go to battle. And when we raise up our banner, <laughs> we raise up our hands, God has indispensable angels that he could send to come in to get into the fight for us. What did Jesus tell Peter there when he was being arrested in the garden? He said that I've got 12 legions of demon, or 12 legions of angels that are just ready, fighting, to, ready to get in this fight, asking to get into this fight. Peter, I don't need you. I don't need your sword. I have 72,000 angels ready to fight for me. But it's the Father's will that I go to the cross. When we raise up our banner to the Lord, when we call on the Lord for help, there's immeasurable help at our disposal. But we need to ask. It's the same thing that happened with Elisha and his servant. Remember, they're up there on the, on the mountain, on that little hill, and they're surrounded by the enemy. And Elisha is standing there, and he's calm as can be. But Gehazi, his servant's freaking out. And he's like, hey, how come you're not freaked out? Look it, we're surrounded. And Elisha's like, there's more of us than there are of him. The enemy. And Gehazi's like, dude, like, there's thousands of them. And it's just us, just the two of us. What do you mean there's more of us? Remember what Elisha does? He prays, hey, God, open his eyes so that he could see what I see. And the Lord opens Gehazi's eyes. And he sees that. And there's... There's spiritual beings all over. There's way more of them than there is the enemy. That same level of power, that same level of help is available to us as well. We just need spiritual eyes to see it. Number three, we need to have the right response to the victories God gives us. So fill in the word response. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and he named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So this was their response to having this victory that the Lord gave them. And the first thing they did was they wrote a memorial. So fill in the word memorial. So was this the book of the wars of the Lord that Numbers 21, 14 speaks of? I don't know. But I think this is true, that Joshua is going to need to be reminded of this, right? God's going to call Joshua on one day to take over from Moses. He was going to lead the people, the children of Israel into, into the promised land. He hadn't done before. He's going to be commissioned to go and to fight Jericho, the most fortified city in the world at the time. And he's going to have to be reminded of what God did back here in the wilderness. He's going to have to be reminded, hey, remember, God fought that battle for us. God wiped out the Amalekites, this enemy that was exponentially stronger than us. They're on camels. They're this trained army. They know how to fight. We've never been in a fight before. But God gave us victory because we trusted in him. And I think God had him write this down so that Joshua would be remembered, reminded of this victory one day. 
You know, journaling is a spiritual discipline. It really is. I don't like that because I'm a guy and I don't like journaling. But that is true. Journaling, reminding ourselves, going back, remembering the things that God has done in the past is a good way to have victory in the future. There's something about life where it just gets harder as we go. Right? The trials, the, the things that God has me doing now are harder than the things that he had me doing two years ago, which were harder than the things that he had me doing two years before that. It's just kind of how life works. It gets harder as we get older. But we have our past victories to encourage us. We have our past victories to remind us of what God did, how God moved, how God brought about the victory. Remember David when he finds out that Goliath is standing there and and he found out the deal that, hey, if anyone could wipe out this guy and bring about victory, that they'll never have to pay taxes again. They'll get to marry the king's daughter and get all these benefits. He's like, well, what are you guys standing here for? I can do that. And this guy, yeah, he might be a giant, but he's puny to God. Well, he knew that. He, he knew he could fight the enemy because he had already, in the spirit of God, fought off a lion and fought off a bear before. He had remembered the victories, the things that God had used him for in the past, and it gave him strength in the future for what God had for him. So we need to find ways to make for ourselves these memorial stones, these things that we could look back and we could remember the way that God has moved, the way that God has worked in the past so that we could have strength in the future. Secondly, we could build an altar. We could worship, fill in the word altar and worship. That's what they did. They built an altar. They worshiped, right? Um, Worship really keeps us from pride, right? Worship reminds us that it wasn't us and brought about the victory, but it was God. You know, that's one easy way to, to fall into temptation, especially in ministry, is you start doing it, and you start doing it, you start having some success with it. God starts using you, and you start thinking, I got this, I know how to do that. And you, you stop relying upon the Lord. Or you go and do something, and people are like, wow, that was great. You know, Saul kills his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. Right? And you start thinking, it was David. Wow, I'm great, man. I'm somebody. I killed my ten thousands. And we're not reminding ourselves, no, it was the Lord. It was the Lord who was working in me. The Lord who was working through me. I can't do anything, but the Lord moves. Worship will keep us from that pride. It will keep us giving the credit to the Lord. Lastly, we need to get ready for the next battle. Fill in the word next. There's going to be another battle coming. We just need to get ready. We need to be ready. We need to be on our toes. Say, hey, you know what? God provided victory. God moved back there. But what's on the horizon? I know one is coming. Out of the 3,400 years of recorded history, there's only been 168 where there hasn't been a battle. I know there's another one coming. My life tells me I haven't had many days where I haven't faced the adversary as a Christian. I know I'm going to face him today. I need to be ready. I don't have time to sit back and to celebrate because that's when the enemy's going to attack. That's when I'm going to fall victim. Amen? So I, I think here there's some practical things that we saw that we could take and we could apply to our life and have victory over the spiritual battles that we're facing 
each and every day. And I pray that they will be a help for us. So God, uh, we do. We thank you for this story. I thank you for the victory that you gave the children of Israel over the Amalek, uh, that over Amalek, Lord. And uh, I, I thank you that you, you don't hold back. You tell us that we are going to fight the flesh. And we want to have victory over the flesh. We want to grow closer to you. We want to grow in sanctification. We want to be used by you in greater ways, Lord. So I pray that you help us to take these things, apply them to our life, and live them out, Lord. And and uh, we can't wait to see what you could do for us. If you could take this group who's never been an army before, has never been in a fight before, has been nothing but been a slave in the past, and defeat a formidable foe like the Amalekites, you could do wonders for us. In Romans 16, it says one day we're going to uh, tread down the serpent with our heels, Lord. And we trust that we have the strength through you to do that. And so help us to be about the battle that belongs to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.